All right, guys, welcome to Property Profits Podcast. I'm your host, Bryce Kaminsky, filling in for Dave Dubow. You ever wondered, where am I going to find my next lead? And so you go outside and tack up a bandit sign on the by the 7-Eleven or the Quick Stop, and you're like, that'll do. Uh, my guest today, Chris Merriman, has a different approach. Um, deep prospecting for leads, which if you're working in the United States in pretty much every market, uh, you need to start doing this. You need to start doing this now. Not to take any of, uh, not to take any of Chris's space away, because the more people who jump in the pool, the less room to swim. But it does take work, and I'm a firm believer that the harder it is to do, the less people are hanging around. Chris, how are you? I'm doing excellent, my man. From Huntsville, Alabama, I uh, love the Southern State here. We are enjoying our first cold front of the year, so loving yeah. it up. We uh, actually closed a deal this morning. Awesome. Awesome. What's a cold front in Huntsville, Alabama? <laughs> so we went uh, below freezing by one degree for probably 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, no. We, but that's our first cold front. I'm, I'm way I'm way further up north. We, you know, ours was like uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, the Halloween movie where uh, there's snow everywhere. That that was us. So um, really, always, are you yeah, up inside always, Canada? Yeah, just north of North Dakota there. So. Oh, Holy cow. Okay, so very very cold. Um it's just just going to get colder. Uh we've been we've been below freezing for a couple of weeks already, so it's wow. uh it's a living, right? That's you know, you can't pick where you're yeah. born, but you definitely get to choose where you stay. So I'm always looking for options. Yeah, and I studied uh under one of the guys, Stefan Arnio from Canada. He was a really really in-depth good teacher. Yeah, yeah, he was my mentor, so small world. That's where I cut my Holy teeth. Working, yeah, I cut my teeth working as his acquisitions manager here in Winnipeg. So that's man, um, that is awesome. Small freaking world. Yeah, I mean, if you're on, if you're part of the Dave Dubon network, that's how I met Dave was through uh, the seminar circuit back in 2015 when we were doing the self-made wow. tour. So uh, a lot of fun. We've had a lot of rides. R.I.P. Stefan Arnio, and uh, I wouldn't be here without him. So lots of uh, Great, lots man. of respect. So. How did you wow. end up in the in in real estate? Like, when did you actually get started doing that? How many years, and what was your first swing at bat? Yeah, so my first swing at bat was I was a contractor. Uh, I started a handyman service during my off time. Like, I co-opted at school, which meant I could leave early and go do jobs. So, at sixteen, I started a handyman service. Uh, at eighteen, I went full time. My parents were trying to kick me out because I had scholarships and I was not going to college. It just wasn't happening. It was not for me. So to help them motivate to not kick me out, right, because I was really conscious of conserving my cash and things like that. I had a took me a while to get over a poverty mentality of, you know, scarcity and hanging on to all my cash and things like that. But that's where my goal was. So my like second month in on doing full time contract, I'd made like nine thousand dollars a month. I was working 120, 130 hours a week, but still. You know, to me at that time, it was massive. So that led to me buying my first uh, rehab. And even as a young, youthful contractor, once I got my hands on any deal, which ended up being owner financed at really great terms, but it was such a rough, rough house. I have still not gotten one to that degree of dilapidation. It was solid. Like the stories in it, you know, um, had all the tube and knob wiring, horsehair plaster walls. Once I broke through Mm -hmm. a few layers of sheetrock and paneling and things. Uh, mm-hmm. four or five different types of plumbing, cra- crazy stuff like that, right? Actually, one of my friends was a, 
He's about he's a little over 300 pounds at that time. He's a hefty guy. He's walking through one of the rooms, and I saw a stud uh, wall plate drop down, and I asked him to bounce right there, and he just picked up on his heels and dropped back. And whenever he did, the floor collapsed, and two of the walls fell in. It was like wow. literally a nightmare. It was so bad. <laughs> so that's where my roots came from. That one actually took me two years. Uh, during that project, I went and hurt, worked uh, Hurricane Michael to get the rest of my rehab funds. I got a private lender on it. It was chaos selling that thing because all the problems it had, it had termites, it had a crawl space, but it only had this much clearance underneath it. So it didn't qualify for FHA and things like that. So I got excellent learning experience in that two years. After that, I was so tore up from being a contractor and being a flipper that I went and got a job. I worked as a mechanical maintenance guy at a plant here local inside Huntsville. Uh, I got up to making 25 bucks an hour. I was ecstatic for the first, you know, uh, about three months because I was like, this is so much easier. I had no worries in the world. And then uh, it started eating at me like how it does with everybody. Uh, Everybody Mm -hmm. was in a bad mood. Nobody was going anywhere. There was no retirement plan set up and things of that nature. So it came back to me. And while I had a W-2 job, I started uh, burring properties, right? Buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. A lot of people have heard that process and utilized it. And I did that mm-hmm. until my banker, who I'd finally gotten through, because you know I was still like a 20-year-old kid, didn't have, meet all the criteria. But once my banker cut me off, I quit two weeks before that final closing. So we did end up closing that property. I'd gotten five, four or five properties before he cut me off at mm-hmm. that last pinch. Got out of there, uh, decided to get back into flipping and things like that. So I was happy I had a little rental portfolio that was cash flowing, made me excited. I was going to jump back in. Feet first, quit my job, and then not too long after, I uh, broke my quadricep tendons, pulled them all off my kneecap, uh, trying to go hunting one day to relax a little bit. So that went for me working as a contractor in my own projects to now being stuck where I couldn't. And it ended up with me selling my entire rental portfolio by the end of it, trying to salvage things. Uh, I decided at one point that was a sign from God that I was meant to do something in, on the internet, and I was supposed to be a stock trader, obviously. That's what my calling was now, because mm-hmm. I was crippled up inside a chair for so long. And I think it was like 11 days in, I lost $22,000 in the stock market, which was like the rest of my capital. I was like, oh my gosh, man. So out of all those repeat mistakes, uh, from going from flipping to back to a job, to burring rentals, it brought me back out where I actually built a sustainable business with a project manager in place, with systems in place that can be maintained from afar, which actually brought me from doing my free leads that I went to doing. And then on my acquisitions, I went to paid leads where I was buying lists and things of that nature, had cold call centers, all that stuff. And at one point we had just a little shake in the market during all this COVID chaos. And I saw that, hey, a lot of my friends who had bigger marketing budgets than I did, who had we're spending anywhere from thirty to $150,000 a month in marketing to acquire properties. They got shook hard, really bad. Mm-hmm. There it goes. And uh, because all that touched me, I decided this was not a sustainable business model. It may be scalable, but it wasn't sustainable. So I backtracked into niching down into these government lists and deep prospecting. And so I could minimize my marketing costs and also have leads that had enough motivation that I could transition exit strategies whenever I needed to, right? So I wanted to make get as much opportunity to do subject twos as possible because I enjoy a subject two because if it's bought right with the right amount of equities, it still leaves a safety margin as well. If you have communicated well with your private lenders, then you can say, hey, the market's changed. If we sell it, you're not going to make all your money back. But because of this low interest first position we have, I can still pay you 10% on your second loan or second lien position 
if you'll maintain with me throughout this little you know economy issue that we're having at the moment. So it mm-hmm. gives you a second exit strategy. Instead of just giving Dean and Louise to everybody and be like, hey, we all lost money. Let's throw our hands up and cry about it. You can come back to the drawing table, communicate with everybody and say, hey, we may have a second opportunity on this particular deal structure. So that's where it brought me to. And as well with pre-foreclosures and things like that, you're already first in line uh, to be able to do short sales if you've already adapted yourself to that type of lead. So instead of flipping houses, we do short sales and things like that immediately as fast as possible. As well as if you've already studied some of the overage game, right? Whenever there's a foreclosure, it goes to auction. If there's an overage that was above what the lien amount was worth or what was debt was owed on the property, that's actually due back to the homeowner. And you can go and claim that overage for some sort of fee for the homeowner if they don't know how to acquire it. So there's another additional strategy, and that money stays there for some time based on statute mm-hmm. of limitations of the state and things like that. So that's something that could be acquired for some time after. So it opened up a lot of avenues for one, uh, sustainability, two, survival techniques in the event of uh, market collapse and things of that nature. So we can just stabilize, maintain keep everybody fed as much as possible, at least get our needs met. Maybe even if our wants aren't met at that time, we sustain Mm -hmm. through it. That way we're stronger on the other side is the goal. So that brings us kind of up to uh, today and and what you're doing. So tell, tell me a little bit more or rather tell the people at home why that, why deep prospecting other than, you know, the obvious thing with, uh, saving a few dollars in that you're not, you know, mailing to people that you right. shouldn't be mailing to. But what's another couple of advantages to motivate some people to spend a little bit more time on their list instead of just like, I got one, let's blast it out. Oh, because everybody's saying the markets are saturated, but that's not the case. Your marketing strategies are saturated because the same mentor taught it and they gave out the affiliate link to everybody else. And then the next guy taught it with a different affiliate link. And everybody's doing the same exact thing. And there's this little Mm -hmm. spot that you can navigate through where you're actually getting a higher ROI pretty drastically with limited ad spend and marketing cost on a higher motivated lead because you actually go out and acquire the leads. And I I also encourage people to not just deep prospect, but create your own list. Because whenever you do that, um, you're you're a month ahead of everybody else, right? So there's very few sites. Like you go to all the leads.com, they provide a pretty good probate listing source right there, right? They do a pretty good job of staying on top of the markets and actually getting you up to date data. Because if you go to a pre foreclosure on PropStream, I've already seen it all. I've already addressed those buyers and I've already mm-hmm. closed the deal by the time you've got it. Mm-hmm. So that's another huge aspect is that uh, competition. I close deals all the time where I am the only person talking to that seller. Like you try to find that in today's market and today's saturation. Some of the mentors yeah. I was training under, would buy the entire zip code and have it cold called. They, they quit even looking for motivation. They would just call everyone. They decided that was better than trying to pick a motivation because they'd already called every list made, right? Mm-hmm. But because these properties weren't built onto their list on some metric, then uh, that's what gives you the upper hand is that you're the only person targeting this motivation. As well, as you start going through this deep prospecting model and concept that you learn how to speak to these people through their problems. Mm-hmm. So whenever someone else calls and says, hey, we'd like to make you a cash offer. Well, someone's losing their house right now through a pre-foreclosure. They want help. They don't want to sell their house and lose their home. So they're just going to hang up on you. But if you can call and actually communicate to someone in their language and say, hey, I know you've been through some hardship right now. I see what's going on. I saw I saw the public notice and things. Here's some options that you can look at, even if you don't want to bother with me buying a house or anything of that nature. Then if you do move towards uh, buying the house, you can provide 
easy opportunities for them to work with you by partnering with moving companies, right? You go to one high-end moving company and say, hey, these people are in need. I'm going to pay you out of my pocket to handle this. You'd be amazed how many deals I get over someone else just because I said, I'll help you move all your things. And then the moving company does it all and they take all the liability for it. So it's great little things like that that you can niche down and really handle these pain points independently and your deal uh, ratio will go up drastically compared to somebody who's just running around making cash offers because you're not teaching or not speaking to that person's problems in depth. So it's a power of deep prospecting and then niching down and then also having no other competition in that arena, right? Or very few. So if I was like in some area, I'd say I'm probably the strongest in the pre-foreclosure space. That's that's a, a great area for me. And I've got tons of deals still that I'm the only person talking to because I knew a few other nuances to help that person, right? So you say a property forecloses and I can help them get their overage. That was another mechanism from deep prospecting that I could go through with those people because I knew all the data because I had mm-hmm. done the deep prospect already. So it opens up a lot of avenues that are highly beneficial than just um, cold calling a certain list that everybody else is cold called as well. And you're hoping your skip trace platform is more up to date or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I like what you said too. It's that, you know, two people show up on the front lawn of this house one person's trying to do a cash offer frame and the other person's saying, how can I help you? You know, whether you, right. whether you sell to me or not, how can I help you? And then that historically, cause I would always say, um, we're not buying houses, we're buying problems. And so if you can buy problems yes. and carry that mentality, you're going to be far more successful in, um, y- y- your focus in that you're not actually talking about what you want, but what you want at the end of the day will come from serving the people that have problems. So we do a bunch of that stuff too, in, in the sense that, you know, we'll, uh, we bought a sea can cause some guy wanted to like move out West. So, you know, we got a laborer out there to help him put his stuff in yeah. there and ship it. And there's not a lot of people that are going to like put $5,000 sea can on the other side of a property before close to make sure that the deal goes. So it's usually the difference. Right. And that's, you know, when we train now, I, I always tell the, the new acquisitions people that are going through it, I say, look, what's the secan? What's the thing that's going to unlock this deal that other people may have had the same conversations, but they're not willing to do what it takes to unlock this deal. So w- what's the key to the deal? Um, you know, that is exactly right. Yeah. Up north here, it's a lot harder to get lists. We got to build them ourselves. There's no lists, zero lists. But in the state, I love that. Yeah. Gosh. Well, Go stand at the city of Winnipeg uh, taxation desk for eight hours taking pictures, and then <laughs> uh, we can we can trade. Oh, so we, there, you, can so... sit, you can sit at home and pull it up on this the county database, and yeah, there's a there's some there's some benefits, but it really is in both of the situations. What we're doing is the work other people don't want to do. They're looking for the easy answer, and the easy answer is available to everyone, just like the first answer in That's Google. That's right. So that is it. How, how would you, what, what would you say your competitive advantage is when you, when you're building these lists, just the fact that you're building them or how you're looking No, no, at them? not just the fact that I'm building them. So there are a few others in the area as well that build these lists, but once the way I talk to each list, knowing they're behind the scenes motivations, right? So right. knowing that a, a pre-foreclosure, that's not actually their motivation. That is their problem that you can see and what brought you to them, but they have some form of underlying problem. Like, yeah. In today's world, it could be because COVID forbearance, they can't figure out how to catch it up. Now their credit shot. It could be some because somebody passed away, 
they haven't started probate. So it's not a probate lead. There's just someone that's passed away or, or now considered pre-probate, right? Mm-hmm. Things of that nature. So there's an underlying pain. So what I do is take these other lead sources and I stack all the lists together to find three or more. And what I used to do to conserve time is that I will stack those. Once I find my three or more pain stacked lists, right? This got like a, a pre-foreclosure, prust, a probate, probate, and a divorce issue, right? I'll put those in as my high target list. I'll spend most of my time, probably 80% of my time targeting just those properties, making sure I come in contact with those people because I know they have the highest amount of motivation and they're the easiest to negotiate with and who I need to spend my time with. Mm -hmm. So all sorts of stuff. I closed one inside Richmond two weeks ago and the process to close it was like, it sounds daunting, right? But I also closed in four days. And that's another piece of my competitive advantage is that I know how to ask closing attorneys really good questions and make them give me good answers. So that way we can work together as a team and not just, hey, I'm a I'm a client, you're an attorney, uh, you're really smart, and now I just need to do what you say. And they tell me it's going to take 45 days to close. Whereas I can assist them in getting the information they need, right? I've got a, a sheet that I've made out where like, they know the client's person, they've got the driver's license, they know their marital status, all the things they already need to close. It's ready to rock. They just need to backspace a deed, you know, name and a deed and, and reprint this in and get title work. And I also talk to attorneys specifically that have some sort of friend or connection with an abstractor in the courthouse. So like, hey, you should be able to text this guy whenever I have an urgent problem and rush my title work. And I'm willing to pay for that service, but that's who I'm going to work with is who has those type of uh, capacities. Because if they don't, well, then has that attorney been into the game long enough to earn my work? So I'm going to do a lot of repeat closings. So things mm-hmm. of that nature give me a competitive edge. And that's what I love about this business is going through those multi-stack pain levels that a lot of people would say they get these lists and they go after all of them. And while they're sort of scattered trying to chase all these leads, I've made a list of maybe 10, but I'll probably close four out of that 10. Yeah, because the motivation, that's one thing Stefan would always say, find the motivation. You know, and then we used to have the three Ds, death, downsizing, divorce. Those are the three. And then we yeah. recently we added the fourth, which is debt. So if you stack those four, let's say someone passed away. Um, now they're having to get rid of the house. Um, and you know, they're, they just happen to like split up and there's, you know, they've been sitting on that probate. They haven't actioned that estate house and they're running into debt. Like those four things stacked up, they're selling, they're selling and I'm getting excited. Just thinking about it all four (laughs) death, downsizing, divorce, and uh, a pile of debt. And really I'm finding, and you're, you can tell people at home, are you finding the the debt the covid debt is actually crushing people out there catching yes. up they're not catching up they're not catching up no and uh most of the mortgage companies are slow on these modifications and by the time they're like 31 days out for their foreclosure auction which in a lot of our uh, non-judicial states here in the in the states that you only have 90 days till that mm-hmm. house is going to the auction steps so if you've already waited around trying to hope to a friend would come up with money or things like that, once you're past that 31-day mark, they just tell you no. Now, saying that, there's a few companies like PennyMag is one of the mortgage companies, right? Like those guys actually are doing something decent in the world. And I've seen them give people modifications two or three days before their auction, just if, as long as the person's willing to communicate with them. So, so it's back and forth. It's not consistent. But the majority answer is that if you're 31 days in, you're not getting that modification. And if you miss one check mark on that piece of paper, it's your problem. You messed up. You're out of time. We're foreclosing on your house. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty like dog eat world for really people who didn't know this circumstance was coming. Because I remember all the news saying, "Oh yeah, it all get wrapped to the back of your loan." Well, they didn't say if you qualify. They just said it would happen. 
Yeah. Right. So now everybody has to qualify for these things. And it's pretty important. Yeah. And, and, and they're not in a great financial position to requalify. It's like you're, you're going to someone where you're back on debt and your situation likely hasn't changed. And like, well, certainly you don't qualify now because you didn't qualify. You don't qualify. You, you wouldn't be in this position if you qualified. So we're coming, we're going to come, you know, scrape that house back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the options are either the mortgage company can take it. And most likely with this current uh, market cycle, they're not going to make a lot of overage or anything on the sale. Then they can make something though. If somebody comes in before the auction and is able to purchase it from them and give them a portion of their equity back. And especially in all our circumstances, if somebody's living in the house, we'll sign a lease with them and then we'll help them move all their things, get situated. We'll have people co-sign with them on apartments and things like that. Like whatever we can do to help them restabilize. And we just say, hey, you acquired this equity. We're going to use part of your equity to help you do this. So you'll walk away with less cash, but we're going to help you restart your life somewhere else. Like, because that's a painful process saying, oh yeah, I lost my house. I didn't make much money. And now I got to figure out what to do with myself is, is a problem. And I think people should be, you know, ethically aware of that if they're targeting pre-foreclosures because you you should have some sort of standard to help these people because they actually have a, a problem mm -hmm. and, you know, things happen. You could be into the same boat and, you know, I was yeah. born in poverty and things like that and we got kicked out of our houses. So I know that emotional, you know, pain that they were going through, especially seeing my parents cry and stuff as I'm a little kid knowing, all right, I guess we're moving, <laughs> you know, with we're nowhere moving, to go. We're moving again. So <laughs> what what's one thing that um, if you could start all over again, you'd do differently in real estate? Wow. If I could do differently, one of the things I wish I would have picked up on was niching down faster. So because I started out as a broke kid, right? I did some wholesales and things like that while I was doing that first flip, trying to make enough money to finish it. And the reason I was better at it was because I would manually skip trace people. So instead of just plugging into a paid service where it generates me some phone numbers, I would manually prospect these people and build a person profile to help find them to make contact with them. And if I would have understood what I'd figured out then that no one else was doing that. Cause I thought that's how you skip trace. Nobody told me any different. Mm -hmm. And if I would have grew on that faster, instead of going away from it, because all these mentors and all these gurus said, you got to buy this list that everyone else bought. You got to use my cold call center and let me get my affiliate off that thing. Mm -hmm. And all these steps that I wasted like hundreds of thousands of dollars in marketing costs doing this to be like everybody else. Cause that's what was sexy. Right. And changing my mindsets at the beginning that volume is not, not sexy cash in the bank is. So mm -hmm. people are like, I want to do five deals this month. I'm like, I just want to make $200,000 this month. So if that equals five deals or one deal, I don't care. I want to make so much money, not have a deal crazy mindset because it makes people start fudging on their ARVs, right? Instead of them going, here's the low side, here's the high side. We'll at least pick here. They start leaning over that high side so they can get one more deal. And yeah. then they're yeah. like, oh yeah, the holding costs are different. And by the end of it, right, they, they end up making less. And so- Understanding metrics like that is what I wish I could go back and change. Is I would have cranked into my what I was doing with deep prospecting earlier because I really enjoy it. And it makes me feel a lot more robust for any form of recession that we would have, as well as um, understanding that you don't got to go deal crazy because I scaled up pretty aggressively and it did impact me. And what it was was I had you know more cost to my project managers, things like that. I was doing more deal flow. So it sounded sexy. I look cooler as if I told people how many closings I had and the checks look good too, except for my marketing cost to uphold that. And my management cost to uphold that was eating away all the profit. So it was the same. If I did 15 deals, it was the same as me doing three good deals. Mm -hmm. So those yeah, were key 
key factors for me. Thing. The volume thing is a big one. People are chasing volume. And it, you, you're right. You know, like some of the most successful people have been the ones that have been able to not overextend themselves, you know, and just sustainably scale and almost do less than they could, but nail what they're doing. So with yes. this with this deep prospecting, um, you'd mentioned that you're dabbling in the idea of possibly training that out. Aren't you worried you're going to bring more sharks to the tank? I hope to bring more sharks to the tank, but like I am really confident in my craft. So it's taken me a long time to learn a lot of nuances, and I know it in a lot of different states. So people will keep coming back to me still to help with problems and JV on deals. And I will just end up as the expert inside my area because I know what I bring to the table and I know how long it takes to learn this stuff. So one, I'm going to fast track everybody so they can do more volume and that there's still a ton of deals out there. Like everybody has their own take and strategy. So it's hard to teach somebody everything uh, to be so robust and be able to adapt at any second. So if somebody speaks differently, like, there's different personality types, like for disc, mm -hmm. disc personality type, for example, me and you may speak better than you and somebody else, right? So because you didn't yeah. connect with that person, but I come in behind you and I do connect with that person. Well, that wasn't either one of us taking from each other. That was just how me and that person connected and you and them didn't or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So that those are certain aspects of human error and things that we can't take away, that there's always going to be deals available. You can't, you can't change that, right? Like certain humans will connect. And this is, this is a making friends and connections game. It's not a, there's equity, there's a seller, all that stuff. If you can't build some sort of rapport with that person, you're not going to get the deal. It's just not going to happen. They have to trust you in some way or you're never getting to that closing table. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, it's very multicultural here in my market and we have a little wholesaling network where all the top guys, we're all in like a Facebook group. So we're not stepping on each other's toes. And sometimes I'll get uh -huh. a lead and I'll be like, this guy is not going to deal with me and I'll send it to that guy. I'll be like, look, you guys go speak in your native tongue and you're in your, in your, <laughs> in the same language, you're literally speaking the same language. And then when you tie it up, I'll bring it to my list and we'll, we'll double, we'll double close. We'll like double wholesale that thing because Love his that. list might be smaller, but his ability to communicate with that seller is going to be on a much higher level. So I'd rather take half a watermelon and try to go in for the whole grape and that's just the whole mentality that's right. because we were we were killing each other you know fighting over the same girls it's like okay you can you go for that one you go we'll go, I'll go for this one and, and it really does help out so you know if you're if you're in a market and you're a wholesaler like network with the other guys because you know there's no point in going to war with each other when you guys can fight you know the same front we're all just trying to find property we're all just trying to make money so um, what are you doing to fund these deals these days? Because the, the environment for bank financing is changing. What are you doing to finance your projects as you're moving forward right now? Yeah, absolutely. So back whenever I was burning and had my day job, obviously I had access to bank financing. Mm -hmm. And that kind of burned me out on bank financing. Whenever that banker cut me off and then just for, it was no apparent reason besides his wording to me. I think it's just because I was a kid, but he said uh, that you, I was like a shotgun going off is what he his statement to me was that I was buying stuff so fast because I was buying like one a month there and then I was cranking up two a month and he's like, you're done, you're done, right? Because this all happened really fast. So he saw that as a negative and I saw that as a as a positive because the, the amount of equity spreads I was getting doing this deep prospecting stuff and how I was acquiring the deals was amazing. So he didn't utilize proper safety metrics and I think that uh, they're 
too, they're not too strict, but they are tightening up all the time. Interest rates are climbing. You have no control. If they say no, that's the end of it for whatever mm-hmm. metric they may want, whether you're shotgun blasting, which has nothing to do with the metrics of the deal. Uh, it has something to do with their thoughts towards you. So now we utilize all private capital. So meaning private capital, the difference between hard money and private capital, hard money is typically someone that's more institutionalized. They, they may, be, may be lending out someone else's money, Mm-hmm. Whereas a private money person is typically a direct friend to friend relationship that you've built and curated. They're lending their money to you and it's more relationship capital than it is all about the deal, the numbers and things of that nature, which obviously you have safety markers to keep everybody safe because if you make them lose money, you're probably losing the relationship with it. So obviously be coherent and ethical of that mm-hmm. aspect, but that is what we do now. And because we do so many sub twos, we've actually had to raise less capital and mostly just train our guys into that safety metric of, hey, this second lien position is safe because one, in our state, uh, a second lien position can foreclose, same way a first can. And the difference is you would be scared to be a second lien position behind a first position and a borrower that you didn't know. But because Mm -hmm. you can talk to the borrower on a relationship basis and then I can tell you, hey, we're screwed. I'm going to default on the first. I'll let you take it over if you want to control the asset or you can foreclose first because I'm not, I can either pay their payment or pay your payment or something's got to change. So mm-hmm. communication fixes all those problems. So yeah. private capital is definitely the way to go and it has built our business and kept us growing so, so fast. Yeah. I really like what you say is communication is key, you know, and things that don't always go straight. If you're an uh, investor that's like going sideways, not picking up your phone isn't going to solve the problem. Like pick up the phone and tell them what it is. And that's what it is. You can't change, uh, you know, the situation, but keeping someone yeah. in the dark is just going to get them more frustrated, get your reputation in the business. So even if the house is that's on right. fire, you pick up the phone for the fire department, you say, yeah, it's on fire. So that's um, right. where do you see, uh, where do you see your, 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 you know, the, the market going, you know, you've been in the business, you've done, um, you know, a good bit of creative financing. Where do you see the markets and the opportunity, let's say in the next five years? Yeah. So I'm obviously presumptive like everybody else at this point, because I've heard so many big guys scream market collapse so many times that I'm definitely not going to do that. So I'm just going to be presumptive that at some point we will have a collapse because what goes up must come down at some point. Now, whether it comes down in you know, a economic collapse, a real estate market collapse, or hedge funds buy all the real estate that's available, right? Now they own the whole, yeah. whatever it is, right? We can't tell the future of what's going on. But I have built out our structures to survive any of those markets up and down. And that's where I see what we will do as this up and down or whatever happens is that I have isolated now because I've, you know, played with a bunch of asset classes. And what I've enjoyed is still buying lower end uh, single family residences inside markets that are lesser than the median market price in the United States, right? So we try to buy a quarter million and less inside markets that the quarter million or 200,000 or whatever it is in that market is the median price point. We stay below that. So whenever, yeah. you know, markets or values tank, we're still in a safety margin there. So we yeah, drop less uh, statistically. Yeah. If everything goes down Perfect. 10 yeah. points, then you're only going to, let's say you're a, you're a median market property, 250 K you're down 25 K. If you're in a median, if your median market, there's like a 700,000, you're down 70k and that might be a lot more uh, painful to your equity right. stack. So Yeah, exactly. Um, I am seeing some of the top guys flip-flopping on that. Now they're saying, "Oh, it's going to go the other way." And it, it you know Let it go the other way. 
yeah, I mean, that'd be great. I mean, the thing it's, it's called the real estate market markets go markets fluctuate like the stock market. So it's not a business. It's not the real estate, you know, foundation. It's a real estate market and you got to be in the market and you got to be playing the market and you got to be marketing. So I love what you, what you, what you're doing with the list. Let me ask you, do you, how do you approach your, your list? So if someone's like skip tracing, maybe they bought a list. Can you give them one quick tip before we go? on something effective to actually get either get them to call you or you know however you get that conversation started yeah so um obviously face-to-face -face is the strongest me mechanism of marketing right so mm -hmm. if you go to that doorstep you are at the strongest point of making connection to that person the next step would be cold calling or making some sort of conversation over the phone with your voice still involved right so you know, the difference is someone who makes a decision about you within less than a second of seeing you for the first time. They have some presumptive or presumptive thought about you as soon as they open the door and make eye contact with you. On the phone, it's three seconds. So you have three seconds. If you stall for that three seconds, they have already thought their thoughts, and now you're fighting probably a downhill battle now. Mm -hmm. So you want to create it where instantly you've got a lot of, lot of gumption to you. Call them by their first name, hit it right off the bat, and go for it. As well as if you go to texting, a lot of people send out a blanket text and stuff because my lists are smaller. I can get a little more curated to my pain points of whoever I'm targeting mm -hmm. and, and trying to work with. And uh, a lot of times I go a little more ambiguous like, hey, Karen, uh, text me about your neighbor because we've got all the public data. You freaking know the neighbor's name. Most likely they know the neighbor's name. Like hit them up about something like that. Or, or if you're leaving a note, mention something like that. So it at least gets everybody jarred if they're refusing to communicate. So you've called this person like two times back to back. Uh, their voicemail goes, you know, it's them. They're just not responding. That's what you're trying to do. And the next step, I go from short little messages that are ambiguous like that to then I actually lay down like a lengthy paragraph of my final straw that pretty much says, hey, here's the full uh, scenario. I've already done all the background search on your property. I know exactly your circumstances, and I re-explain it back to them. I am said, here's pretty much what I can do for you, and mm -hmm. if you don't want to work with me, please let me know, just a yes or a no back. That way I can either stop trying to communicate with you, and you've got it settled, or we can try to move forward. And I get so many responses from that point because I lay everything out so transparently at that point that this is who I am. I give them my full name. I'll like I'll send my picture of my Facebook profile. Like I am a real person. Here is your circumstance. Here's what I do. Let's communicate authentically to one another. Yeah. I like, I like what you said. Sometimes I'll even go as far as to um, call the neighbor and ask if they can get a hold of the person to get them on the phone. Like, Hey, I'm having trouble getting hold of so-and-so next door. Uh, you know, if they're around, can you throw them my phone number? And a lot of times yeah. the neighbors are more conducive to the conversation because they want that house fixed. <laughs> they're tired of looking yes, at it. Yes, they do. So, and, um, and sometimes they're just nosy, right? It's like, yeah. being that you brought that up, the deal that we closed today, the guy ghosted us from no other reason except for he was busy at work and stuff. We show up at the house. He's not there when he's supposed to be on his lunch break and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, my partner goes over, pays the neighbor 20 bucks and says, you call me whenever he shows back up. And that's what happened. Like, they were like right on top of it. And we showed back up. We're able to close on the deal. But because there was some urgency behind it because of his motivations, um, we probably wouldn't have got the deal done if we didn't close the day because we were on a deadline here. So that was highly effective communicating with those neighbors. That's a huge point. If you can go in person or over the phone, whichever, talk to the neighbors because normal people, if you've ever just skip traced average people, they're pretty easy to find. 
Like Mm -hmm. most people are find a bull. It's whenever you get to these high motivations that people are like using track phones and losing their phones and changing addresses, or they lost their phone because they can't afford it or they don't even have a phone line or internet in their house. I remember this one guy had to go to the library to send me the offer back by email. He had no heat. He had no, I think he maybe had power. I don't even think he had water. So it, oh my god, really got to like, I think some people forget the situations that these people are in and think that, oh, if I run a Facebook ad, no, man, he's not, he's not, he doesn't have a computer. He has to go to the library to look at your Facebook ad. He's not finding you. You got to go to the house, especially in these distressed situations. So I love that. Um, If people want to get a hold of you, you know, they want to pick your brain or they want to work with you, invest with you. Where do they reach you? How do they find you? Yeah, man. So I think Instagram is my easiest way to find me. Uh, It's just Chris Merriman uh, with two N's at the end. M-E-R-R-I-M-A-N-N. So that's simple enough. That That's my uh, username on there. That way I can actually see your uh, DM or message or things like that. That's our simplest place. I've actually got a podcast now that we're running that's NYC meets Bama. It was one that me and my girlfriend started up and now she's got a new dog. She's getting like TikTok famous. She went from 4,000 to 40 something thousand followers. So she's probably about to side off on her own thing. We're going to change the name of that, but it's where it's going, man. It's the new age. Yeah, you gotta you gotta participate in the game. The game you can't never own the game, but you definitely can know the rules. So I really appreciate uh, I I really appreciate your time, Chris. I love deal finding. I love hearing people's success in doing it. And uh, yeah, guys, if you're listening at home, reach out to this guy. He knows what he's doing. He's gonna shorten up your lists for you, okay? And uh, yeah, it. until next time, guys. We'll uh, catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much. And Bryce, can you reach out to me, my man? I'd like to talk to you if I can. Yeah, stick around. We'll chat.